I'm Ewan Brumner and you're listening to Reflections, Art, Life and Love from the National Galleries of Scotland. This is the series where we study the length and breadth of human experience through the eyes of diverse artists. If I ask you to imagine a scene that best depicts Scotland, what do you see? Would it include the architecture of Charles Rennie Mackintosh? The opening scene from Irvin Welsh's Trainspotting? An image of revellers during Edinburgh's festivals? Do you picture dramatic crags, glens and misty lochs? Maybe you've seen a bagpiper up to his neck in tartan or some biscuit tin image of a majestic animal in Arcadia. Is it a stag? Yeah, that's one thing. Perhaps it's people that you see, or buildings, castles, or oil rigs, or gritty city skylines, politics, triumphant voters, resilient workers, struggle, triumph. Okay, I could go on. Over the years, advertisers, artists, politicians and poets have all presented different visions and ideas related to Scotland and identity. Add that to your own experiences, and the upshot is a mishmash of conventions and perceptions that conjure a unique version of Scottish identity. But why do we share some of those images, and why do others divide us? Where do we inherit an idea of what our national identity is, and what it should be? Right now, the National Galleries of Scotland are developing a new suite of exhibition spaces which will showcase the National Collection of Scottish Art right at the heart of Edinburgh. So we're going to look at some of the artworks that have come to symbolise or have tried to embody what it means to belong to this nation. And we'll look at how different artists have depicted Scotland in recent history. We'll hear how reality, sentimentality, politics and money all collide to create a picture of what Scotland is today. Let's start with an image you've probably seen, although maybe not in a gallery, one of the more romanticised images of the nation. My name's Trisha Alliston. I'm a Deputy Director of European and Scottish Art at the National Galleries of Scotland. But I'm also, at the moment, co-director of the Scottish National Gallery Project, which celebrates Scotland's art. We're talking about the Monica Glen by Sir Edwin Landseer, which is a painting that has not always been seen as a work of Scottish art. Basically, it's a painting painted by a very famous English artist, and it was created out with Scotland but it has to be one of the most evocative and recognisable creative views of Scotland. It was originally commissioned as one of three paintings to decorate the refreshment room in the House of Lords, I think it was. It is a large painting. It's very square. It is an image of a stag. Um, You don't get the full beast. You sort of cut off at the knees, standing on a sort of grassy knoll and silhouetted sort of three-quarter ways against a distant background of hilltops um, enveloped in cloud and mists. We are very interested in, in how it represents Scotland, what it says about Scotland, and how people engage with it as an image of Scotland. One of our key galleries we're thinking about is the image of Scotland that developed in the early to mid-19th century I remember being in the gallery on the day when it was being hung because we were doing something else in the gallery and it was absolutely fascinating seeing the way that people responded to it, reacted to it without knowing it was there. It became the picture that visitors wanted to have themselves photographed next to. It's created in the mid-19th century, but it's changed hands various times. And in the early 20th century, it was bought by Dewar's Whiskey Company. And for much of its earlier career became an iconic image in relationship to advertising whiskey. 
it's often a criticism made of artists such as Constable that they end up on biscuit tins. I, I don't think that at all. I think if you find an image that does become used in multiple ways, in multiple different formats, in multiple, for multiple different purposes, it's a real sign of success of the image. Whereas for many people, this is a very positive image. It's this sort of constructed view, this perfect ideal view, if you want to see it that way, of the Highlands. For some people, everything that it encapsulates is the opposite of their view of the Highlands. And in a way, I suppose, because it was created a little after the time when there were many, many changes happening in this part of Scotland or in, in not necessarily in the part of Scotland that Lancy knew well, but in other parts of Scotland. There's been a complete disjunction between this image and the reality of life for many people in Scotland. And that, that's been very interesting as well because it shows again that the image can be used and has many meanings according to how you read it. To gauge other people's thoughts on Monarch of the Glen, we spoke to people in the gallery. I don't know, I, th- I think this particular painting looks very Scottish, but if I was asked to paint one, I don't think that would be the first thing that come to my mind. No. If I wanted to make it something really beautiful, it'd be something like that, but I don't think that really does Scotland. You only have to walk ten minutes outside the city centre in Edinburgh, you get a dull normality, modernness, you know, um, like, you know, this was the opposite to that, you know, so it's an opposite that becomes, you know, the symbol of the whole thing, which is, doesn't really make sense, but that's what happens in people's brains. It's like a, it's a theatre of the, that landscape. It's beautiful. It looks... Somewhere deserted, no towns, no roads, just hills. Well, obviously there's the wildlife, then there's the background, which is nature in its pure, uncontaminated form. So it's about peace outside of human life. Personally, I see it as kind of Scottish because it's quite... It's kind of devoid of kind of other people in it. It's quite, um, I won't say barren, but it's, you know, it's rocks and it's kind of like grass and just, you know, wild, like wilderness. It's, I think it's a lot of tradition in Scotland. It's possible to see it. And the picture kind of also has a part in it. Monarch of the Glen is an arresting sight, but how can this romantic interpretation be problematic? The Highland clearances saw the eviction of many settled people from their land in the mid-18th to 19th century. And for some, Landseer's vacant landscape is a stark reminder. I'm John Morrison. I'm the head of the School of History and Heritage at the University of Lincoln. With the Monarch of the Glen, you have a very highly romanticised image of Scotland. And it's not to say that Scotland doesn't contain red deer stags and it doesn't have dramatic mountains and, on occasion, rather bad weather. But it's the combination of them and the presentation of them together that make the Monarch of the Glen such an iconic image and such, for some people, such a problematic image because of the subtext. The figure of the stag, who apparently is, is a specific stag, but he was a, he's a pet stag. Um, so he's actually not terribly typical of a, um, a wild stag because he's rather too well-fed and rather too fat, basically. This king, this power that there is in the stag, can be brought down, can be shot, but only by the absolute elite, but nobody else. So it's a reinforcement of the dominant power elite of the country, the landowners. That's what the painting tells you. I think it's entirely embodied in 
the then current identity for Scotland, which sees Scotland as a sporting playground for the power elite, which is curious given that Scotland is at that point the second most industrialised country in the world after England, and the population is largely living in the central belt. Um, it's not a painting about the clearances. It's not a painting which criticises the clearances or celebrates the clearances, but the background of the existence of the painting and the culture that it relates to is intimately bound up with the clearances, and Landseer couldn't have failed to be aware of that. Which makes it a very curious painting to use to celebrate the entirety of Scottish culture, because it's actually about a very small part of culture in Scotland, and it's also about the exclusion of large parts of the population of the country from their own country. Although Landseer's study and work took place in a different area to some of the issues we're talking about here, it's interesting to ask what and who such a romantic image of the Highlands can stand for in that context. Horatio McCulloch also explored the landscapes of Scotland. Landscape painting is relatively new at the time. Horatio McCulloch's uh, very much associated with Glasgow, though he trained and later worked in, in Edinburgh. Um, and he was one of a number of really interesting landscape artists who developed from a theatrical design background. So, um, and very much influenced by, in a sense, landscapes being presented large scale as a backdrop. Many, many of his paintings were bought to decorate public institutions, so they are large-scale, or in the case of the Inverlochy Castle, which we have, which is a really beautiful painting, was bought by uh, an organisation that wanted to give significant paintings to help build a national collection. It was felt there was a sort of painting that a national gallery should have to represent this, this, this developing nation. Interesting, it took a long time for the Monarch of the Glen to come into the national collection, the ultimate image is almost like a, um, a perfection. It, it builds on reality to create something different. And this is something which artists, many of the 19th century artists, have been criticised for, that they're not representing exactly the um, highlands that they saw. And we know that Horatio McCulloch played with reality. So in the Inverlochy Castle, he'd originally painted a, a group of cattle, for example. Then he painted that out and painted a boat in the space. But that's what artists have been doing since the Renaissance, improving on what they saw or changing it to create a much stronger idea or a more perfect image in their eyes. The image of Scotland that developed in the early to mid-19th century. Uh, Sir Walter Scott had a massive impact on this. He wasn't the only person uh, thinking about what Scotland was and had been its history. But he did have a very big impact on the visual arts, on artists, not least because he created books that he wanted people to illustrate. Next, we're going to look at who has the right to make and consume artistic depictions of Scotland and what happens when politics and money have their say. Here's a quote from Queen Victoria's journal in 1844. She wrote this after her second trip to the Highlands. There is a great peculiarity about the Highlands and the Highlanders, and they are such a chivalrous, fine, active people. Our stay among them was so delightful. Independent of the beautiful scenery, there was a quiet, a retirement a wildness, a liberty, and a solitude that had such a charm for us. Back to John Morrison now. The Highland identity for Scotland, the romantic Highlands of Scotland, is a very well-established uh, identity. Queen Victoria has not invented that, but she has embraced it wholeheartedly. And 
the usual figure who, depending on your approach to this, usual figure who gets the blame for this is Sir Walter Scott. That's completely unfair, really. Walter Scott did not invent the Highland identity, but he's such a powerful figure, he's such an influential figure, that his version of Scottish history, his romantic reconstruction of the Scottish past, is serves a real need in Scotland. Now, I think that need has to do with the fact that by the beginning of the 19th century, Scotland's been part of Britain and by then very happily part of Britain and doing well out of being part of Britain. It's been part of Britain for a hundred years. But it's never really quite settled on what that actually means for it in cultural terms. So that for a while there's an attempt in Scotland for Scotland to reinvent itself as North Britain and it doesn't really quite work. And in effect, Scotland, I think, is looking for an identity. Walter Scott offers the answer, and he offers a beautifully simple answer. The answer is, it's the Highlands and Highlanders. And that's something that has a marvellous um, hook to it. And the hook is that it's not English. Now, that's not because he's, it's anti-English. It's just because it's different. In Hugh McDermott's posthumously published poems, he reflects upon the destruction of London by German bombs during the Second World War. In this one extract, you get a feel for the emotional distance between British and Scottish nationalist perspectives. The leprous swine in London town and their Anglo-Scots accomplices are, as they always have been, Scotland's only enemies. In the 1920s and 30s, a new identity emerges, begins to emerge, and... This is sometimes referred to as the Scottish Renaissance, and there's a group of figures, with Hugh McDermott as the central figure, but a group of figures of uh, writers and musicians and fine artists, uh, designers, who encapsulate an approach to Scotland and a, a sense of what it is to be Scottish, which is new and different. It is very left-wing, uh, and it is based on a working-class identity, quite commonly, and it is determinedly not a romantic identity. And quite often, the things that those artists in various media do are conscious responses to earlier forms of Scottish identity, particularly the romantic identity. So there's a McCann's painting called From Another Window in Thrums, which is a direct reference to the J.M. Barry book, a window in thrums, and that pocky um, lad of parts, the, the, the poor guy who makes good, and a slightly patronising attitude to uh, the working people, all of that McCance would have seen embodied in Barry, and that is something which he resists, and in common with all these other people in the Scottish Renaissance, they would resist that patronising identity and they're promoting a stronger, quite hardcore, left-wing identity. Whereas you might find elements of uh, the current Scottish National Party quite left-wing, they will still nevertheless embrace Tartandy in New York, which is pure Highland Scotland identity. And they're doing it because economically it makes sense. It does very good things for Scottish exports, it promotes whisky, it promotes tartan, it promotes tourism into Scotland. I don't think those people would hugely endorse the uh, political aspects, the quite conservative, but certainly not the unionist, nationalist aspects 
that that identity is very strongly associated with. So you can find something like the Scottish Renaissance trying very hard to kill off that romantic identity, but it's just so powerful that it keeps on recurring. I think that it, it doesn't remain entirely unchanged, though. And I, I think, I like to think, in a way, that more recently it's taken on a slightly sort of postmodern self-mocking element. I think it's almost as if that Scots now know that this isn't real, this isn't them, but they'll play up to it and they'll still love it and enjoy it. People still wear kilts and enjoy them. So that's not entirely self-mocking, but it's quite self-aware now, I think. So it does evolve that identity, but it still has a very powerful grip. And while its economic significance is still so important, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. If identity in art is such a complex, multifaceted and unique experience, why have some things become shorthand for Scotland? How quickly do things change and become an outmoded cliché? We thought it best to speak to the artists themselves. My name's Louise Scullion. Uh, I'm Matthew Diel, and we're uh, a partnership team called Diel and Scullion, mostly known as environmental or ecological artists. I suppose what we are interested is in nature and how human beings interact with that nature and the relationship between the two. I think on the whole Scotland has got a very good tradition of um, being able to em- embrace the other and uh, and to have, despite the smallness of our numbers, to have quite a broad sense of who we are as a nation. It's good to hear you know, an, an immigrant's voice on, on what Scotland is and uh, you know, an incomer's voice is just as relevant to get lots of different perspectives and not to become too insular in a small country. I guess that's a very easy thing to happen. We operate politically, but it's more privately. Our art, art is more about the landscape of Scotland and, and how people respond to that because the landscape and the environment is a very contested space just now due to climate change fish farms, it's quite complex. And then you've got tourism. People value it in different ways, depending how they're uh, gaining from it. But I think anybody's got the right to speak about Scottish art. I think there probably is, uh, you know, a national art, but it's not all to do with landscape. The other notion of tradition was uh, the Harry Lauder and all that, the the tweed, the man with the, the, the stick that sang a song... It was kind of pandering to a notion of what Scottishness was, mostly as entertainment for down south. And it's it's quite interesting when you move about the landscape, that, that idea of uh, the tweed is still prevalent. The When you watch um, shooters or businessmen coming from abroad or down south, the first thing they do is to get the tweed on themselves. And they also like all the gillies and the gamekeepers to be all tweeted up. It's kind of entertainment and escapism for them in a way. You know, Matthew mentioning tweet there, that there, you know, it, it can be seen as a, as a cliched type of fabric, but in some ways it's a, it's a revolutionary type of fabric because um, the rules with which it's made, it has to be made in the maker's house with no power, it has to be you know, generated with their own body in order to be called, well, Harris Tweed anyway, and it's the smallness of it that, that makes it have value, which I think is an interesting thing. I suppose if you're speaking about nature and the environment, 
the the idea of nationality doesn't really come into it. It's an abstract term that human beings put on it. What does nature think of this place? Never mind being, what do the Scots or the English think of it? What does the, the birds or the animals think of this place? How have they been treated? That That's our kind of starting point for making work, I think. Plenty to think about there, and some questions for the future from Deal and Scullion. The landscape outlasts all of us, so how does it speak for itself? You can head along to the galleries anytime to take a look at the works and make up your own mind. I'm Ewan Bremner, and thanks for listening to Reflections from the National Galleries of Scotland. If this show has got you thinking, tell a friend about it, share it on your social media, and subscribe to the next. I'll be back next time.